Skeptics of the supernatural through the years understandably have expressed their doubts about life after death. Just sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? If you're a skeptic about the supernatural, you're going to express some doubt, uh, sometimes in a very public way, about life after death. So here are some quotes that might be worth your hearing. Bertrand Russell, I believe that when I die, I shall rot and nothing of my ego will survive. Carl Sagan, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue, but I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than, and that is more than wishful thinking. Elon Musk, I think you cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely you're just gone. Woody Allen, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. Well, again, uh, such sentiments, such ideas, such cynicism and skepticism about life after death are hardly new. In fact, this morning we're going to be looking at a text where we see that there were a group of people in Jesus' day who felt very much the same as the gentleman that I just uh, read the words of a moment ago. Uh, and they are pressing on him to see what his views are. And his response is well worth our hearing. If you have a Bible, turn now to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. We are moving on in this extended series in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in chapter 22, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. Uh, it's on the screen there. If you want to look at it, follow along in your Bible there. Uh, however you'd like, it's fine. Here we go. Hear now the word of God. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and of the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you. We do need clarity here. We do need clarity. There is a lot of confusion just a lot of different errant ideas, mistaken ideas um, uh, about something of intense, immense, eternal significance. The stakes here are not just life and death, but life after death. There is not a person in this room that this topic is not relevant for. We are all going to die. At some point, somebody in this room is going to be the last one standing because everyone will have preceded them. 
And we all need to wrestle with this. Some of us, uh, just simply uh, for our own sake this morning, perhaps for the sake of people that they care for, who have preceded us, maybe long ago or very recently, we all need to wrestle with this. This is not something that is just theoretical. We ask that you would give us eyes, ears, hearts, and changed lives according to your word. We pray these things in your name, O Jesus. Amen. I'm sure many of you know that this weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the landing of the Apollo 11 lunar module, lunar lander, um, the Eagle. That mission was filled with many memorable moments, to say the least, not the least of which was the exchange between Neil Armstrong and Houston upon the landing. Armstrong radioed back, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed, to which Charlie Duke responded, Roger, Tranquility Base, we copy you down, we've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue, but we're breathing again. Now, we know why Armstrong was speaking. He was the commander of the mission. That just makes sense then. It was, it was right and proper for him to be speaking in that moment. But who the heck is Charlie Duke? Why is he speaking? He is speaking because while there were dozens of people there at Mission Control in Houston at that moment, Charlie Duke was serving in the role as Capcom. And Capcom was the one individual authorized to speak to the crew. There are dozens of other people there in mission control, but only one is given the right, is given the authority to speak. Only one. No one else has that right, has that privilege, has that authority. Only Capcom. This issue of who has the authority, the right to speak, is exactly what is in play in Matthew 22. It's exactly what's in play here in Matthew 22. Last week, we talked about how the Herodians have come to Jesus challenging him on questions of political matters. Next week, we're going to look at how the Pharisees come to Jesus. This is all in one day. How the Pharisees come to Jesus and are going to challenge him on moral matters. Today, we're looking at how a group called the Sadducees are coming to him, challenging him on doctrinal theological matters. This is the second of three, second of three attempts to try and embarrass Jesus, to trip him up, to expose him, if you will, before the people. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, with each one of these attempts that, and no surprise, each one fails miserably, but with each one, the answer that Jesus gives not only answers the question, but he gives insight into the thing that they are trying to trip him up with. So, so last week, they're trying to trip him up regarding the state and the church and political questions and things like that, and Jesus speaks right into it and gives us some incredible insight into those issues. And here this week, we have the Sadducees coming and asking him questions about matters of life after death and the resurrection, and it's the same thing. Jesus answers their questions, but also gives us this brilliant insight into, in fact, the very thing that they're asking him about. He has anything but... He is anything but getting tripped up 
or tricked somehow. It's, it's, it's just the absolute opposite. They're asking, what happens to us after death? They, rather than, than trying to trick him up or trip him up, they should be learning from him. They should be listening to him. Who are they speaking to? Who are we listening to at this point? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the resurrection and the life himself. That's who's speaking. Jesus alone has the authority to speak on these matters, to speak on the resurrection. We must then heed what he has to say. Let me say that again. Jesus alone has the authority to speak on these things, to speak on matters of the resurrection. We must then heed what he says, especially when we consider what he gives us in this teaching. Three things. It's there in your, your outline. He gives us something to believe in. That's true. He gives us something to hope in. That's real. And he gives us something to live in. All three, something to believe, something to hope, and something to live out of or live in. Let's look at these in turn. First, believing in the resurrection. And by the way, what I mean is simply this, the fact of life after death, the, the reality that awaits the believer in Jesus, the follower of the Messiah, the one speaking here, of a re-embodiment that is coming. New heavens and, and new earth is the promise. So this question is posed to Jesus. And let me read the question, then we're going to unpack it, dissect what's going on here. But let's first read the question again. Verses 23 to 28. The same day, Sadducees come to him who say, There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, what in the world is going on here? We'll start with this. Who are these people asking this question? The Sadducees were an, from the aristocratic wealthy families in Israel. They're a minority group among Jewish groups at the time, but they held a lot of power and a lot of influence determining all the activities that took place within the temple there in Jerusalem. As far as, this may surprise you, as far as what part of the Old Testament they held to be authoritative, it was only the Pentateuch, only the first five books, the books of Moses, that's what they held to be authoritative, just that part of the Old Testament. They were pragmatists. Was gonna, we're going to come back to this in a little while. They were pragmatists, very practical, if you will, when it came to how to deal with the Roman occupiers of the day, doing whatever it took to make things work. And then as far as what they believed, what they assumed to be the case, they did not believe in any resurrection. They did not believe in any sense of life after death whatsoever. Other. They, their, their creed was, the soul dies with the body. Put a period on it. That's where they're coming from. That's the assumption. That's the worldview. That's the theological system, yes, that these Jewish men of Jesus' day were operating in. So in order, they, they have a, you know, a certain way of looking at things. And so when they're going to try and trip Jesus up, they're coming at him with all of that in play. They approach him with this scenario of a 
seven brothers and one bride, uh, the scenario pertaining to revolving around a custom, a law, the leveret marriage. Now, what that meant was, it goes back to, to Moses' day, it had to do with this, that when a, um, the brother, an, the unmarried brother of a deceased man who had no children, when, when the brother dies, the unmarried brother of the deceased is to marry his sister-in-law so as to care for her and provide for her and also continue the line. That was the custom going all the way back to, to Moses' day. And, and, and scholars differ as to whether or not that was actually still in play at the time, but the Sadducees are using that to, as a scenario, this hypothetical scenario, to try and, and trip Jesus up. Well, what then is the answer that Jesus gives to this question? Let's pick it up, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You're wrong. Another way to translate that is to say you're lost. You are deceived. You are ignorant. About what? Well, two things. Jesus is very pointed in what he says here. First, about the power of God. You are assuming. Then it, when it comes to the idea, the concept, the vision of what is to come, of life to come in the next age, you are operating under the fallacious, erroneous assumption that everything then will be as it is now. You are assuming that God has no power, no ability to bring about this radical change and renewal, which is why he says what he does about marriage. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this. It's, it's rather tantalizing, to say the least, what Jesus says here. Uh, but we, we need to, to pay heed to it. Apparently, just going by what Jesus is saying, which is a pretty good thing to do, um, in the next life, in the new heavens and the new earth, our relationships, for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our relationships will be of such joy and freedom and faithfulness and love that marriage will no longer be a thing. Just taking Jesus at his words, what he says. I don't want to spend any more time on that than that. I know it's like, whoa, that's a rabbit hole we could go down like 100 feet. Coming out of the hole, back on the ground, all right? Um, the main point being you are ignorant, you are lost, you are wrong, about the power of God. Now, that is a stunning thing for him to tell these men. And then it gets worse. You're not just wrong about the power of God. You're, power, you're, you're wrong about these very scriptures that you think you're so right about. Now, there are more than... There are several places in the Old Testament that you can go to, to get at least implicit, if not explicit, teaching on the resurrection, on the new heavens and the new earth, this re-embodiment that awaits... But Jesus, knowing their frame of reference, goes to the Pentateuch. He goes to those first five books because he knows that's really all that they're going to listen to him on. So he goes to Exodus. He makes, he's referring here, alluding to, to Exodus 3, the, the appearance of God in the burning bush to Moses. 
where God says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, not I was, but I am. He's speaking in the present tense, which implies that somehow, someway, though these men have been dead in the ground, their bones rotting for centuries, even in Moses' day, somehow, at the same time, they're alive. And it would seem that God's covenantal promises to his people cannot be stopped, cannot be ceased, cannot be severed, even in death. Even in death. You're wrong about the power of God and the scriptures as well. So the idea being that the, the, the questions, this conversation, just that, the questions, the answers, all of that shows us something of the rightness of believing in these things, just in what Jesus says in this. So, so let's just, before we go on to the second point, let's just drill down on this. What happens at death? Physical death, what happens at death? Physically speaking, here's a few things. The brain stops emitting electrical waves. The heart stops beating. The muscles relax. Motion ceases. Decay immediately begins to set in with the major organs in every cell in your body. And if you come back on the table somehow, if you are revived, you know what that really means? You weren't, you are almost dead. You weren't really dead. You weren't dead, dead. <laughs> Man has no power, has no ability to reverse death. But God does. And he has the ability not only to reverse it, not just to resuscitate, but to resurrect to bring about what we can really call a re-embodiment, a renewal of all things, placing us as new people in a new home, in a renewed home, as perfected people in a perfect world. In fact, not only does he have the ability to do that, he's promising us that's what's coming. That's what's coming. Just hang on because that's what's coming. Again, Jesus alone, he's the only one who has the authority to speak on these things, and he does, and we need to hear and heed what he has to say. This is not just life and death. This is life after death. We really need to hear what he has to say. That takes us to the second point. So not just believing in the resurrection, but hoping in the resurrection. So not just something in terms of, of, how we, of, of our thinking, but something that we're counting on, something that we're counting on. Here I want to take you... Moving from Matthew 22 to 1 Corinthians 15, and Dave read from that chapter a few minutes ago. Um, turn there if you would. Matthew 15, it's not the same text that, that Dave read earlier. It's little, going back just a little earlier in the chapter. Matthew 15, I'm going to skip around just a little bit, but starting in verse 35, Matthew, uh, Matthew 1 Corinthians, what am I saying? 1 Corinthians 15, did I say Matthew 15? Before, if I keep talking, it'll be John. Or Isaiah 15. Okay, it was 1 Corinthians 15, sorry. 1 Corinthians 15, um, the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 
1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some, of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Skipping over to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul is speaking here uh, of the, the image of a seed. The image of, of a seed or, or a kernel, as, as the ESV puts it. And he's making a, a, um, a comparison and a contrast between the, the bodies that we have now, the present body, and the bodies that we will have in the future at, at the resurrection. And there's two things going on here. Again, there's a comparison and a contrast. There's similarity and dissimilarity. Or if I can put it this way, there is a sweet discontinuity. A sweet discontinuity between the body now and the body that will be. The body now is natural and mortal and earthly and subject to all kinds of weakness and decay and ultimately death. But the body that is to come, the future body, the resurrection body, like Jesus's, is eternal, is immortal, is imperishable, is spiritual, as Paul tells us, meaning and dwelled, empowered by the Spirit completely and utterly, more so than we experience now, is this blessed, sweet discontinuity. And yet at the same time, the seed metaphor comes into play with this too, there is a shocking continuity because it's still us. It's still us, renewed, but the same person. It's why we will be recognizable one to another, just as on that first Easter, Jesus was recognizable by his disciples. At the resurrection, so too will his raised disciples be able to recognize one another. I know you. I know you. It's going to be the same thing. It's why we can speak of a reunion to come because we're going to recognize one another. Let me give you a shadowy uh, illustration of this. It just kind of points in this way. Summer is a time for movies, big movies. It started in 1975 with Jaws, Steven Spielberg. That was really the first of the big blockbusters for the summers, and it hasn't changed really, really since. You almost expect it now. So those of you who haven't seen the movie, here's a spoiler. Sorry. Um, the shark eats people, but, but it's more, more, more than that. Um, so the second victim of this shark was this young boy named Alex Kintner, played by an actor named Jeffrey Voorhees, okay? And when the, when the crowd realizes what's happened, that this shark's gotten hold of this kid, they all run to the shore, get out of the water, but his mother, uh, his mother, her actress's name was, uh, da, 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 oh, shoot, I had it here. Lee Fierro, okay, she plays Mrs. Kintner. 
She's stumbling around in the water, calling for her son, calling for her son, and he never comes. Okay, put a bookmark in there. That's the movie. Now, real life. Years, 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 years later. This is where IMBD, a uh, website that tracks film and TV and all that, picks up the news story. So the, the actress, years later, who Lee Fierro, who played Mrs. Kintner, walks into this seafood restaurant and notices on the menu an Alex Kintner sandwich. <laughs> and she makes, she makes mention of the fact that, oh my gosh, I played his mother in Jaws. And the word gets back to the kitchen that this comment has been made. The owner comes out to meet her, and guess who the owner is? But Jeffrey Voorhees, who played her son years before. And they hadn't seen one another since. Now, that's just a, I said that's just a glimmer. A glimmer of an illustration pointing towards the reunions to come. All the brokenness, all the pain, all the separations, done. And it's really us meeting really us. But a restored, renewed us. Which is why I want to drill down a little bit more on that discontinuity because it really is good to know that it's really us, but that's not really gonna be good unless it's a renewed us. I don't want eternity with me as me, and you don't want it either, <laughs> okay? It's gotta be a renewed me and a renewed you and a renewed this. That's the only way that's something to look forward to. J.I. Packer, lists these off. It's a series of seven things, and if I remember to, I'll put this on the Facebook page later today, just this list. Just, just listen to it. Don't write it down. Just listen. This quick listing of these things that, that Packer says that we can look forward to. Perfect knowledge of grace through limitless extension of our powers of understanding. Perfect enjoyment of seeing and being with the Father and the Son. Perfect worship and service of God, our whole selves set free for love and obedience. Perfect deliverance from all that is sinful, evil, weakening, and frustrating. Perfect fulfillment of all our desires of which we are conscious. Perfect completion of all that was good but had to be left incomplete in this life. Lastly, endless personal growth in the encompassing of all these perfect things. Dang. I mean, you see, the, 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 the image of that seed and the promise of what is to come, that is what builds this concrete hope that we have. And indeed, it is concrete hope. There is, if we're hearing this at all, there is no room whatsoever for boredom when we think of what is coming. Some of you have heard me say this. There is no reason whatsoever for resurrection-bound people to have a bucket list. It doesn't make any sense because there's no way the best of what you can cram into the few days you have on this earth is going to even come close to what's coming on day one of being with Jesus. So why the bucket list? 
Do you see the insanity of that? In addition, the hope that we speak of is not, not the way we so often use the word hope. It's not optimism. It's not glass half full. It's not wishing. Hope in the biblical understanding of the word is a certainty of outlook in the promise of God that he has said is something that is coming. And we're locked on that. We're rooted in that and living out of that. That's hope. And Jesus, with what he's saying here in Matthew 22, is giving us something not only to believe in, but to hope in. To hope in. And again, he's the only one that can speak this way. He's the only one who has the authority to speak on these, on these issues. Let me push on to the third, the final point. Not just something to believe in, something to hope in, but finally something to live in. That's related to the hoping in, but getting a little bit more explicit. Getting a little bit more explicit. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, and Dave did read this, um, there at the very end, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the last verse of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I read that because when it comes to these matters, it's so important to recognize that Paul ends this discussion with the word, therefore. This is not just something to be studied. This is not just something to be thought about. This is not just something to be bantered around, you know, in smoke-filled rooms. This is something to be lived in. If it's believed, if it's hoped, it's something to be lived in. Therefore, therefore, just give you two, two things that are quite significant in terms of a therefore. The first is moral courage. Moral courage in this life, because how far we see determines how we then live. Think about that. How far we see determines, has everything to do with how we then live. Moral courage. Let me give you a negative example and a positive example. The negative example, the Sadducees. I alluded to this earlier. Their worldview, their understanding of things was, we'll call it a secular perspective. What you see is all there is. The soul dies with the body, so you only go around once. This life is it. That was their perspective. So they live for now and did whatever it took to, main, to grab hold of and maintain power. Which meant they had no backbone. They were willing to compromise and do whatever it took, serve the Romans. That's what they were willing to do, to serve the Romans. Not the living God, but this occupying force. Do whatever it took. Be pragmatic. Do whatever it took to maintain what they wanted, which was control, power, and influence. Again, how far you see drives how you then live. Negative example, positive example, the early church. How far did they see and how then did they live? The early church, the historians are now referring to this in terms of what shaped them as the Easter effect, the historical reality of an empty tomb, 
Jesus on that first Easter Sunday, body's gone. The historical reality of that, they know that. They're convinced and convicted out of that, and they know it's the assurance and the first fruits of their own resurrection to come. And so as a consequence of that, it changed them. It changed them, making them a people whose lives were typified by love and sacrifice and service, not just for one another, but even their enemies. Because again, how far you see determines how you then live. Moral courage. Moral courage. Something else, not just moral courage, but deep resources in suffering. Deep resources in suffering, whatever form that suffering may, may take. As an illustration of that, I'm going to tell you about a, a lady that many of you know, may know about, Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know about her, you need to. When she was 17... She was paralyzed from the shoulders down in a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. That was in the late 60s. She has been paralyzed from the shoulders down ever since. Understandably, she went through an extended time of being angry, of being depressed, having suicidal thoughts, going through a time of deep, profound spiritual doubt. Of course she did. But in the years since, she's written over 40 books, She's a much sought-after conference speaker. She's an advisor in a whole host of different ways, and she is a steadfast advocate for the disabled all over this world. Her outlook, her, how she, her, her horizon, how far she sees, if you will. You can get a sense of this from a, a quote. I'm going to read this to you from a recent article that she wrote. It was just published not long ago in Christianity Today. Her words, Scripture presents us with this eternal perspective. I like to call it the end-of-time view. This view separates what is transitory from what is lasting. What is transitory, such as physical pain, will not endure. But what is lasting, such as the eternal weight of glory accrued from that pain, will, will remain forever. As the Apostle Paul writes, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The Apostle Peter, too, writes to Christian friends being flogged and beaten. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Rejoice? And you're being thrown to lions? This kind of nonchalance about gut-wrenching suffering used to drive me crazy. Stuck in a wheelchair and staring out the window at the fields of our farm, I wondered, Lord, how in the world can you consider my troubles light and momentary? I will never walk or run again. I've got a leaky leg bag. I smell like urine. My back aches. I'm trapped in front of this window. Years later, however, the light dawned. The spirit-inspired writers of the Bible simply had a different perspective, an end-of-time view. Mind you, I'm not saying that my paralysis is light in and of itself. It only becomes light in contrast to the far greater weight on the other side of the scale. And although I wouldn't normally call five decades in a wheelchair momentary, it is when you realize that you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. How far you see has everything to do with how you then live. How far do you see? How far do we see? 
Jesus is speaking to us with authority on the matter of the resurrection. We need to heed what he has to say. I was started with an allusion to Apollo 11. I have to end on that. There's another individual, a lesser-known figure within all that drama. His name was Steve Bales. Steve Bales was 26 when the eagle landed on the surface of the moon. His role in all that was to serve as Guido. It was an abbreviation, meaning he was the guidance officer at the time. It was his job to monitor the onboard navigational computer and the guidance software on that computer as well. I don't know how many of you know this, but that Apollo 11 landing was a bit dramatic, oftentimes far more so than is oftentimes reported. For starters, the Eagle, very late in the game, was off course by miles and was coming in way too fast. As though that wasn't bad enough, both Armstrong and Mission Control back in Houston were getting these alarms from the guidance computer indicating that um, it, the computer was having trouble processing all the data and information in a way that was fast enough. And so Steve Bales is the guy that has eyes on all this. And it's his job to assess, do they land or not? Or do we need to abort this mission or not? All eyes in that moment are on Steve Bales. It's his job to make the call, go or no go. Well, he said go, so they went, and now 50 years later, we celebrate and mark the event, and that's great. But he was the only one who could make that call. Now, Matthew 22, again, this is not just matters of life and death. This is matters of life after death. This is not just matters of, of temporal cool stuff and adventure in outer space, but this is matters of eternity, the resurrection. And we need to hear from the only one who actually is in a position to make that call. And when you consider the, the extent of the confusion on this issue, oh, how we need to listen in. I mean, we could just go out to, to Starbucks or Panera or Walmart right now and do a survey. What do you think happens to you when you die? And I guarantee you this is the response you're going to get from the, probably the majority of the people. Well, you go to heaven, you become an angel, you play a harp, and you float on clouds. You laugh. You know it's true. You know it's true. Why do you think people are so disinterested in heaven? Why do you think nobody really wants to give it any thought? Do you want to give that some thought? I don't want to give that some thought. I want to live down 90 plus if that's what it is. But that's not what it is. Friends, we don't need false signals. We need truth. We need the facts. And that's what Jesus is relaying to us here. Let me pray. Lord, indeed, we are surrounded by so many myths, so many tall tales. We are also surrounded by many who just outright deny that there's any reality to these things at all. We need to hear. We need to heed. We need what you are giving us, something real to believe in and to hope in and to live for. We ask that you would help us to sink our roots in these things, that we would be people 
of moral courage. That we would be people with the deep reserves in seasons of suffering. That you would make us resurrection people who look to your resurrection as the certainty is the surety of our own. And that Monday morning would look different because of all of that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.